Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, November 25th. In today's news, the Secretary of the Navy is out. Mike Bloomberg is in. And pro-democracy parties score stunning gains in local elections across Hong Kong. But first, the big idea. A confidential White House review of President Trump's decision to place a hold on military aid to Ukraine has turned up hundreds of documents that reveal extensive efforts to generate an after-the-fact justification for the decision. Three people familiar with the records say the internal communications also reveal an intense debate over whether the delay was legal. The research by the White House Counsel's Office includes early August email exchanges between acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney and White House budget officials seeking to provide an explanation for withholding the funds after the president had already ordered a hold in mid-July on about $400 million in key security assistance. White House lawyers are expressing alarm that the review has turned up unflattering exchanges and bad facts that could, at a minimum, embarrass the president and also give fresh fodder for those pursuing impeachment. In the early August email exchanges, Mulvaney asked acting OMB director Russ Vogt for an update on the legal rationale for withholding the aid and how much longer they could get away with delaying it. Trump had made the decision the prior month without any assessment of the reasoning or legal justification. Emails show Vote and OMB staffers then arguing over whether withholding aid was legal or not, while officials at the National Security Council and the State Department protested vigorously. OMB lawyers said that it was legal to withhold the aid as long as they deemed it a temporary hold. Mulvaney's request for information came days after the White House Counsel's Office was put on notice that an anonymous CIA official had made a complaint to that agency's general counsel about Trump's July 25th call to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. This official would later file a whistleblower complaint with the intelligence community's inspector general, which brought all of this eventually to the public's attention. My colleagues Josh Dossie, Carol Lennig, and Tom Hamburger, who broke this story last night, say that the in-house document production has exacerbated growing tensions between White House counsel Pat Cipollone and Mulvaney and his team. Cipollone is tightly controlling access to his findings, and Mulvaney's aides are complaining that Cipollone isn't briefing them or other White House officials, giving them important information that they say they need to get their stories straight when they're responding to public inquiries. The result has been contradictory messaging from the White House. Mulvaney's lawyer, Bob Driscoll, declined to comment, and Cipollone didn't respond to requests for comment. The emails revealed by White House lawyers include some in which Mulvaney urges vote, his protege, to immediately focus on Ukraine's aid package, making it clear that this was a top priority for Trump himself. The legal office launched this fact-finding review of internal records in a protective mode, both to determine what the records might reveal about internal administration conversations and also to help the White House produce a timeline to defend Trump's decision and his public comments. Along with examining documents, the White House counsel's review has also involved interviewing some key officials involved in handling Ukraine and dealing with complaints and concerns in the aftermath of that July 25th call. 
Cipollone's office has focused mostly and closely on correspondence that could be subject to public records requests, those which involve discussions between staff at the White House and at other agencies. Internal White House records are not subject to federal public records law, the so-called FOIA law, but messages that include officials at federal agencies like state are. And the truism in these sorts of scandals is always follow the money. And that, once again, appears to be the case in the Ukraine affair. The Wall Street Journal is reporting this morning that Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, the two Rudy Giuliani associates who were indicted and arrested as they tried to flee the country with one-way tickets, tried to recruit a Ukrainian energy executive to join them in a proposed takeover of the official state oil and gas company, which represents 10% of Ukraine's GDP. And Bloomberg News reports that Giuliani himself also discussed representing a state-owned Ukrainian bank that was in a legal dispute over the summer at the same time he was pressing the Ukrainian government on behalf of Trump. Though he ultimately didn't take on that client, the talks underscore his enthusiasm for foreign buckraking and his willingness to insert himself in matters rife with potential conflicts of interest. In fact, the Ukrainian bank that he was in negotiations with is entangled in a legal dispute with its former owner who has close ties to Ukraine's president, Zelensky, and is the subject of a federal investigation in the United States. Congressman Devin Nunes, meanwhile, the ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, says that reports he met with ex-Ukrainian Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin in Vienna to obtain information about the Bidens were false. The allegation was made by an attorney for Parnas, the Giuliani associate, who says that he helped set up meetings for Nunes in Europe a few months back. On Fox News, Nunes declined to answer any questions about the accusations, simply saying they're false and threatening to sue anyone who reported them. House Armed Services Committee Chairman Adam Smith, a Democrat from Washington, said this weekend that it's quite likely, quote, without question, that Nunes will face an ethics investigation over the taxpayer-funded trip and meetings with Shokin. Parnas has reportedly provided the House Intelligence Committee with audio, photos, and video recordings, but what these records show is unclear. And the chairman of the committee, Democrat Adam Schiff of California, said his team is pressing ahead and preparing an impeachment report even though several key witnesses have refused to testify, and Schiff says the investigation is continuing. During a half-hour interview Sunday on CNN, Schiff said the evidence against Trump is already overwhelming. Now, a federal judge is expected to rule later today on whether former White House counsel Don McGahn must testify under subpoena before Congress. If the judge rules that he needs to, that could clear the way for other White House officials like former National Security Advisor John Bolton to also appear. Schiff said Sunday that time is of the essence and that Democrats will continue to investigate even after they submitted their report to the House Judiciary Committee and potentially even as a trial convenes in the Senate. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the Pentagon said last night that Defense Secretary Mark Esper asked for the resignation of Navy Secretary Richard Spencer on Sunday after losing confidence in him over his handling of the case of a Navy SEAL accused of war crimes in Iraq. Spencer's ouster is another dramatic turn in the story of Chief Petty Officer Eddie Gallagher, a Navy SEAL who was accused of committing war crimes during a 2017 deployment. Gallagher was acquitted of murder, but convicted this July of posing for a picture with the corpse of an Islamic State prisoner. Trump weighed in on this decision on Twitter, accusing the Navy of mishandling the Gallagher case. 
Rather than criticizing how the Navy pursued the case, however, Esper said that Spencer privately proposed to White House officials that he would ensure Gallagher retired as a Navy SEAL with his Trident insignia if Trump didn't interfere with a review board convened to determine his fitness to stay in the elite force. Esper's spokesman said Spencer's proposal to the White House, which he didn't share with Esper during several conversations about the matter, according to Esper, contradicted his own public position on the case. Esper, though, said he will let Gallagher retire with his trident. In other words, the deal that Esper says Spencer was trying to work out is going to happen anyway at Esper's doing. Spencer's apparently secret proposal came after Trump intervened in the cases of Gallagher and two other soldiers on November 15th. Countering Pentagon recommendations, the president issued pardons to Army Major Matt Goldstein, who faced a murder trial next year, and former First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence, who was convicted in 2013 in the murder of two unarmed men in Afghanistan. Trump also reinstated Gallagher's rank after the seal was demoted as punishment for posing for that photograph with the corpse. After Trump's intervention in the case, Rear Admiral Colin Green, the commander of Navy Special Warfare Command, moved to convene review boards for him and three other Navy SEALs to determine whether they should be ejected from the SEALs. That prompted press reports that Spencer might resign or be fired for standing up to Trump, which Spencer then denied on Saturday. But Trump was reportedly annoyed that Spencer had threatened to resign and wanted him out. This whole thing has been sort of a confusing mess. Spencer released a letter to the press last night saying that he had been fired and emphasizing the importance of the rule of law. He said he was not going to follow an unlawful order, but he didn't specify whether he had received an unlawful order or what that unlawful order might have been. Trump tweeted that he will nominate Ken Braithwaite, a retired Navy rear admiral who's currently the U.S. ambassador to Norway, as Spencer's replacement. Number two, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg officially announced his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. Bloomberg has promised a disruptive campaign that could break spending records with a massive advertising buy aimed at states that don't vote until March and April. Without offering specifics, his announcement video released Sunday says he'll push for the wealthy to pay more in taxes and to guarantee health care to all Americans without removing private insurance from anyone who wants it. His campaign has made more than $30 million in television advertising reservations to help introduce him as a candidate. Those ads will begin airing today. Bloomberg has also announced a $100 million ad campaign to criticize Trump in key battleground states and a $15 million voter registration effort in those same battlegrounds. These initial spending plans are already double the amount raised by Bernie Sanders, who's been the top fundraiser in the Democratic field through the end of September. The billionaire's news outlet, Bloomberg News, announced yesterday that it will stop writing unsigned editorials about its founder and its reporters will avoid investigating Bloomberg or other Democrats running for president as long as he stays in the race. Bloomberg operates one of the world's largest media organizations with about 2,700 journalists across TV, radio, magazine and digital operations. The tagline in Bloomberg's presidential ad campaign is Rebuild America. White House advisor Kellyanne Conway replies that America already elected a builder. Number three, Hong Kong's pro-democracy parties swept aside the pro-Beijing establishment during local council elections in a significant endorsement of the protest movement that's been shaking the island for months. Voters took to the polls in record numbers on Sunday to cast ballots in the only fully democratic election in the Chinese territory, an early sign that they wanted to send a strong message to their government and to the Communist Party in Beijing. 
Early results show pro-democracy parties winning 278 of the first 344 seats to be declared. Pro-Beijing parties took only 42, independents 24. Many prominent figures in the protest movement won seats, and many leading pro-establishment figures were defeated. Pro-democracy forces look to be able to secure 12 of 18 district councils that are available in Hong Kong. Before this vote, they didn't have a majority in any of the 18. About 3 million people, or 71% of eligible voters, turned out. That's more than double the turnout in the last local elections in 2015. Voter registration was also a record high, driven by 400,000 first-time new voters. The election's results will pressure Beijing to rethink its approach. With this rebuke of its affiliates in the city, China faces a choice between opening up politics as promised in Hong Kong's mini-constitution, extending a crackdown on the pro-democracy protesters by the city's police, or trying to navigate a delicate middle path. Beijing can continue to dig in, but would risk escalating and prolonging the conflict that the electorate has now offered support for. Reacting to the outcome, Chinese state media is blaming foreign forces, particularly the United States, for interfering in their elections. Analysts say it's very possible that Chinese leader Xi Jinping has not been receiving accurate information from lower-level officials on the level of public dissatisfaction with China in Hong Kong, despite months of protests, because apparatchiks never want to upset their authoritarian leaders. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, November 25th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. It's updated whenever news happens. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.